Aloha and welcome to Town Square. I'm Beth Ann Koslovich. And as we say each week, our conversations include you. If you'd like to join us, our number is 941-3689. Or if you call us from the neighbor islands or if you're listening to the live stream someplace else and want to join in, our number is 877-941-3689. Regardless of which candidate wins in November, America's new president will have to face how she or he will position the U.S. in a changing global context. We already know how that idea will be reflective, reflected in a foreign policy from fighting terrorism to trade and that it will look very different. This week, as part of an NPR project, A Nation Engaged, NPR and member stations around the country are focusing on a central question. What is America's place in the world? On Town Square this afternoon, we'll take up that question with our panel and you. First, a conversation we recorded earlier today with retired U.S. Army colonel and former diplomat turned activist, Anne Wright. Here's what she had to say about the place she sees America occupying now and where it ought to be. America's place will certainly be of importance to the rest of the world because of our economic and security uh, military reach that we have. What I am very concerned about is that the new president does not overreach, that the new president respects other countries, respects the sovereignty of other countries, and that we as a country stop from our use of our military all too frequently to really putting great effort behind diplomatic means to resolve contentious issues. And there are some very contentious issues, of course, that are still on the plate, that continue on the plate, but have to ultimately be resolved by words, not bullets. Has President Obama overreached, in your opinion? Yes, I think he has, as have most presidents. The U.S. role in using drones in military operations, uh, where we essentially assassinate, we execute uh, Uh, individuals and groups of people that fit a standard description like uh, male with facial hair and a turban. Those sorts of things, I think, really do uh, exacerbate uh, the security situation in the world. It makes young men and women around the world uh, dislike the United States, and I think that is one of the causes that we've seen of groups such as ISIS uh, arise, although ISIS coming out of the a terrible decision to invade and occupy Iraq, over which I resigned in 2003. Uh, But the decimation of the uh, military of Iraq, which now has reappeared in great measure as the logistics arm of ISIS, all of this leads me to say to the new president um, that we do not need to be invading and occupying countries because it is dangerous for our national security. It doesn't help us. Given who we are seeing play out in the presidential race. Do you have any confidence that overreach will not happen? I have no confidence at all. In fact, I'm very, very wary, very, I won't say scared, but I am very concerned about this. I mean, we've seen as uh, Hillary Clinton, both as a senator and then as secretary of state, she has been very supportive of the use of uh, Uh, military operations to resolve issues, even as the chief diplomat of our country. She was still pushing for military operations. And when we look at what's happened, particularly in the last two years, with what I think is a very dangerous policy of the United States, of the vilification, the demonization of of the 
other two superpowers left in the world, and that being Russia and in China, that indeed we need to be uh, reaching out to resolve issues with both of those countries instead of uh, the propaganda machine that the U.S. has, uh, which continues to vilify. Um, and, I mean, it's not that either one of the countries are perfect countries. There's no doubt about human rights violations in countries and various things that pressure needs to be put on these countries, as other countries need to put pressure on the United States of America, which has very similar violations of human rights with the largest number of people in prisons in the whole world, with our continuation of Guantanamo, where we, as a national policy, now say there are people in the world that uh, will never see... Um, a judicial situation where they have a right to defend themselves in a court, that it's too dangerous to have people have their rights. These are things that the world looks at us and goes, hey, you guys are preaching to us about a lot of stuff, but you've got to clean up your own house, too. Cleaning up our own house and, and taking care of internal matters is one thing. Then there's also what we see happening playing out on, on a world stage. I'm thinking about China and the South China Sea. You know, Here we are looking at issues first in the Pacific, as that's where we are. How do you assess that kind of situation where it's not as overt as it could be, but certainly there's a lot more than just a subtle subtext that is an assertion of power? Well, I think when you look at all of the countries that have now built on islands in the South China Sea and other places, not only China's built there, but apparently Vietnam now has been building on some of the islands. The Philippines is building on them. So it's just not China, but it's only China that we read about in our papers. And when we look at from the Chinese perspective of where the United States has built on islands, where we have the defense rights to a larger area of the Pacific than the continental United States is. I mean, when you look at our compact of free association with the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, and Palau, where the United States has the defense rights of that huge amount of territory, plus our military bases in South Korea and Japan. Uh, when we look at Guam being a very militarized island, and now the United States putting U.S. military into Australia, up to 2,500 Marines, they'll be rotating through there. And when we have our missile defense range, from Vandenberg through Kauai uh, and then on out to Kwajalein. I mean, the Chinese look at it and go, you're talking about us building on a couple of islands? Look what you guys have done. Uh, even though historically, I mean, we've been doing it for 70 years, but sometimes in the eyes of other people, it's like 70 years you ought to be returning people rather than you, the United States, continuing to have all of these forward bases, which, of course, is the strategy of the United States, but it sits in the craw of many of the countries of the region. Yet there was that ruling earlier this summer in an international court in The Hague that rejected China's claims in the South China Sea. Well, That yeah, was pretty public. Uh, I mean, these courts, uh, uh, at least it did get to a court. You know, the United States doesn't even allow itself to be sued in, in like, the International Criminal Court. The courts will make their rulings, and, yeah, I understand what the court is saying, but were there other court cases that were brought against the other countries that are also building bases? And I don't think there have been. And yet, if you're going to be equal in all of this, then everybody that's building in these islands uh, should be held accountable for it, and China certainly being one of them. You also seem to be making a point about what's going on in the East China Sea in the Senkakus. Yeah. I think we need to look at the whole range of who's doing what. And it looks like it's not just the Chinese, but 
everybody's kind of getting into the act. And, you know, one of the issues from the Chinese perspective, where even though it's military naval vessels and all, they do have their first aircraft carrier and supposedly are building a second one. Uh, The United States has 10 aircraft carriers. And when you look at military budgets, China is still a very small military budget compared to the United States. I want to talk to you a little bit about North Korea, because that's one of the countries that people like to point to and, and say that you know it's a threat not only to South Korea, but potentially to the west coast of the U.S., Hawaii, Guam. Do we talk too much about that in a way that's not realistic in your mind, or is it not being talked enough? Well, you know, I was in North Korea two years ago with women across the DMZ, and we purposely took 30 international women from 15 countries, including two Nobel Peace Laureates, to North Korea because very, very few of us have ever been there. Even though North Korea has diplomatic relations with virtually every country in the world except the United States. I mean, it was like going back to the Soviet Union 35 years ago. It's a very controlled society, and we saw essentially what the government wanted us to see. But our purpose was to meet with people. And granted, they were mostly government people, but you got to start someplace and to to have a dialogue instead of confrontation. And we continued this dialogue in February of this year, where we met with six women from the North Korean government in Indonesia. We picked that country because North Koreans do not have to have a visa to travel to Indonesia, so they could come there. And our original purpose was to bring South Korean women and North Korean women together uh, to have a face-to-face dialogue. However, the South Korean government has prohibited the meeting of South Koreans with North Koreans since the explosion of the nuclear weapon by the North Koreans in January. So we ended up having separate meetings, North Koreans first with our international group, followed by the South Koreans meeting with us. The bottom line is, despite the intense propaganda and rhetoric that comes out of North Korea, and, uh, I mean, you've got to and certainly recognize that the uh, missile tests that they've had, as well as the, the nuclear tests, are very dangerous. And to eliminate that danger, I think we need to be using words, not more confrontation. And in fact, in July of this year, July 6th, there is a very important statement again from the government of North Korea saying they want to talk about a peace treaty. Because in their opinion, which we got from both delegations that we've met with, both in Pyongyang and then in Indonesia, the bottom line from the women of the government of North Korea, who were sent there as official representatives, is that if the United States and South Korea will will sign a peace treaty, then there are no need, there's no need for nuclear weapons by the North Koreans. And so the way to get rid of these, these uh, uh, horrible weapons is to sign a peace treaty. And, but the U.S. position is they've got to take away the nuclear weapons first before we even talk about peace. And then North Koreans say, are you crazy with you guys having the largest military exercises ever? On the, on the DMZ, 300,000 people this spring in an exercise that was called decapitation. So, you know, the, the direct warning to, to North Korea that we're not going to sign peace, we're going to decapitate you. So the North Koreans say, why would we get rid of the one weapon, which is probably forestalling uh, an invasion and occupation of North Korea? So well, I'm, I'm looking for words, not bullets on this. And just in general, just to close us up a little bit, 
as you look at, again, America's place in the world going forward, given everything that you've just told us, is there a place that you see that we haven't really talked about that we should be talking about? Well, of course, the Middle East. Um, even though we are concerned with the U.S. pivot to Asia and the Pacific, certainly the uh, what's going on in the Middle East is a critical part of world insecurity and instability and dangers. And the huge refugee migration that's come from the horrors of uh, war in uh, Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan is so heartbreaking. You know, the chaos that started really uh, in earnest with the invasion, U.S. invasion of, of Iraq, and has just proceeded for the next 13 years, uh, that is a place that the focus has to remain on. Uh, and then the other part of it is the Israeli-Palestinian issue of the of the Middle East. That that's a very important uh, area. That uh, dialogue, not confrontation, is important in my opinion. And right, thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure, Beth Ann. Thank you. That was retired U.S. Army Colonel and former diplomat, now activist, and right. Tonight on Town Square, we're part of an NPR project, A Nation Engaged. NPR and member stations around the country are focusing on a central question, what is America's place in the world? If you'd like to join us, our number is 941-3689. If you're on Oahu, use that number. And from the neighbor islands or anywhere else, you may be listening to the live stream, 877-941-3689. Now to our panel. Joining us by phone is Ralph Casa. He's president of the Pacific Forum CSIS in Honolulu. He's also the senior editor of the Forum's quarterly electronic journal. In our studio, we have Hawaii Pacific University history professor John Davidan. The framework for his research focuses on the question of whether the U.S. government should be projecting more than just military force internationally, and whether America should be sending out more cultural products, music, art, and ideas. In 2013, he published a world history textbook, Cross-Cultural Encounters in Modern World History. Also in our studio is UH Manoa political science professor Sankaran Krishna. He teaches politics, economics, and the state, and several levels of comparative politics. His work spotlights nationalism, ethnic identity, and conflict, Identity Politics and Post-Colonial Studies. He's currently working on a series of essays about the partition of the Indian subcontinent in 1947, the culture of Indian foreign policy making, the silent presence of race in international relations, and Indian nationalism in the diaspora. And, of course, you're here, too. Thank you to all of you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me on, Bethann. Thank you. And me, too. And you, too. All right, you, too, otherwise known as Ralph Costa. I want to start with you. You heard uh, Anne Wright talk a lot about the Pacific. We're looking at that because clearly we're here and moving outward. She talked a lot about overreach and the fact that she thinks that we've been doing that and that every president has, has pretty much done that. Do you agree with her? Uh, you know, I have a great deal of respect for Anne, and I really respected her stand on the uh, second Gulf War, which in fact I think was a clear case of overreach. Uh, but I think she's a little out of her depth in talking about the South China Sea, and quite frankly, uh, with all due respect, a little naive in, in talking about North Korea. Uh, we are not, you know, using drones to attack anyone with facial hair and a turban. That's, that's sort of ridiculous. 
we're trying to kill people who are trying to kill us. Uh, yeah, I much prefer a diplomatic solution to a military solution. I think everyone in this administration and in most administrations uh, prefer that. Uh, but uh, I haven't heard a lot of people in ISIS saying they'd like to sit down and talk. Uh, so, you know, there are cases where I think there is no alternative. Uh, in the South China Sea, uh, equating uh, what China has done to what the Philippines and Vietnam and others have done. I mean, the Philippines, Vietnam, and others have reclaimed the total of 50 acres of land. China has reclaimed 3,200 acres of land. So to say, well, everyone's cheating, yeah, that's true, but, you know, the Chinese are a, a bit world-class there. And clearly, uh, while we have human rights problems in this country, and we I think we acknowledge them and are working on them, but certainly need to work harder. I certainly wouldn't uh, equate uh, human rights problems in the United States with those in China, much less North Korea. Just to set the record straight, uh, what the North Koreans have said is they want a peace treaty not with South Korea and the United States, but with the United States alone that cuts out the South Koreans, even though it's their peninsula. And secondly, that recognizes and legitimizes them as a nuclear weapon state. Then they'll talk about nuclear weapons. So it's if it was uh, if they were offering a deal the way uh, Anne described it, we would jump on it. I personally have had six different meetings with North Koreans uh, in the last year. Uh, I know what their position is. I've heard it from them directly. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I think she was sort of miscommunicating or maybe misunderstanding uh, what their positions were. Thank you, Ralph. I want to move around the table and, and talk to you first, Kirshner. What did you make of that? <clears throat> um, I think I see where uh, Dr. Kosa is coming from in some of his critiques of uh, what Anne just said. But at the same time, there's a lot of aspects to U.S. foreign policy and uh, U.S. engagement with the world really going back the last four or five presidencies, which... Uh, are seriously problematic. We have arrived at a position where we have come to define terrorism almost as a kind of natural and insensate phenomenon which answers only to military force. I think what Anne was emphasizing was the need to regard terrorists as political adversaries and as people capable of dialogue, capable of uh, engaging with you on difference. And when you actually go and look at the statements made by many of these outfits, you know, it's one thing to look at the most extreme contemporary form like ISIS and say they are incapable of dialogue. That's true. But if you look at the backstory, if you look at how these groups emerged, there were moments of political moderation. There were times of dialogue during which they were making substantive critiques of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, a U.S. tendency to... Uh, regard most problems there through the prism of oil or a very narrow definition of U.S. security. And these are legacies of those things. So the larger point about stepping outside of a counter-terrorism type of framework and seeing these as political problems which can be resolved through dialogue is an important lesson in what Anne was saying, which I don't want to get lost. And I do want to say that the point about drones being used to kill anybody with a brown skin and a turban is actually empirically quite accurate. Stanford University study, uh, which uh, the latest figures that I'm talking about are more than a year old, so it's a bit dated. But 
Their study found that of over 3,800 casualties created by drones, the overwhelming number in excess of 90% could not have been by any stretch of definition seen as uh, military targets who needed to be taken out. An astonishingly large number of them were what we call collateral damage. So from the perspective of somebody on the ground in Peshawar or in Swatwali or in Yemen or in northern Africa, absolutely, drones do seem to be something that just targets indiscriminately. For all the talk about precision warfare, it's not been that. And Dr. David N. Right. So I'm, I'm just glad there's still room for some good old-fashioned political radicalism in the United States, and that's what we got from Ann. Um, I, I think uh, there's, there's room for that kind of talk, but I, I have to agree with Ralph that I think uh, her discussion about uh, the South China Sea and North Korea was problematic. Um, I think, uh, the, you know, the, the terrorism issue is something that governments have to face head on. But honestly, I don't think we, the, the biggest problem I see is we don't have a long range policy. We don't have a long we don't have a longer vision than which terrorist leader we're going to try to kill tomorrow. And I think that's probably the that's my biggest concern. <clears throat> I'd, I'd like to see us do more with non-lethal communication, cultural communication, sending, uh, you know, cultural missions, uh, getting, uh, you know, Middle Easterners, more Middle Easterners into the United States, uh, this kind of thing. So uh, I, I think there are other ways to approach this problem. And in that regard, I, I agree with what Ann was saying. Uh, we need some alternatives to a strictly military approach in the Middle East. All right. I'm glad to hear from all of you about that tonight. If you're just joining us for Town Square, we're taking on the question, what is America's role in the world? What should it be? The world has changed very much, continues to change. And we're looking at really what should America be doing in, in the world and uh, with a changing global context. 941-3689 is our number or 877-941-3689. For so many decades, the U.S. has been regarded or believes that perhaps it regards itself as being the world's big brother, this very paternalistic country that uh, may have some very good things that it has been able to promulgate and see happen around the world or and some other not-so-very-good things, as, as Anne was alluding to. I want to go around the table again and just ask you about that because it seems that the— the balance of power certainly has been shifting worldwide. Where does America fit into that now, and how much of a leadership role does it take with the way that balance of power has, has been shifting? Ralph? Well, I mean, that's the, that's the key question. You know, there's that, that old prayer about, you know, give me the wisdom to know the difference between those things I can change and those things I can't change. There are many problems in the world that the U.S. can't solve and that the U.S. shouldn't be trying to solve. There are some problems that we need to be a part of the solution and somewhere only we can lead. Uh, I think the first Gulf War, for instance, the invasion of Kuwait, uh, it would have been very difficult for someone other than the United States to take the lead, and I think we had clear, limited objectives. and. I would say that was a perfect example of the appropriate American leadership using the appropriate tools. Uh, quite frankly, President Obama's attempt to uh, 
push forward the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, is a very appropriate symbol of American leadership in the economic realm in the world's most important economic region. Uh, and unfortunately, he's being attacked uh, by both candidates uh, for this uh, for reasons that are much more political than they are either economic or uh, in terms of security. So I, I think we need to learn, uh, you know, there, there are occasions where American attempts to make things better have made things worse. Uh, I think the second Gulf War certainly fits into, into that category. So uh, I, I don't subscribe to American isolationism, nor do I think that any time anyone dials 911 that the U.S. government or the U.S. military ought to be answering. But I think we do need to have a certain amount of responsibility. Uh, we have uh, the most powerful economy, the most powerful military, and quite frankly, uh, if we learn to live up to them, the most powerful set of values. Uh, and we shouldn't be shy about trying to protect those kind of values and try to help those that genuinely need help. Uh, but again, we need to have the wisdom to uh, know when that's the appropriate uh, response and how. Thank you. Krishna? Um, I think I'd like to pick up the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership specifically because uh, it shows, I think, uh, an important moment in the transition of hegemonic power in the world. The question really is, why are both candidates distancing themselves from the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Uh, Trump has made it clear that he is in some ways an economic nationalist. He's in some ways an isolationist in foreign policy. And that's resounding very well with a large constituency of angry whites all across the United States who see their hopes of the American dream absolutely disappearing as actually having absolutely disappeared. And they see things like NAFTA and the TPP and things like that as milestones in that journey towards their being rendered completely irrelevant. So someone like Hillary Clinton, who was strongly for the Trans-Pacific Partnership earlier, finds it necessary to distance herself from it today. More than just being an individual whim or trimming her sails to the political winds, there are reasons why she's doing it. And I think it's important to understand what those are. The fact is that the last three, four, five decades of American growth have bypassed a vast majority of Americans. There's been such a polarization of wealth in this country. There has been a real sense amongst the middle class that uh, the interests of elites, the interests of people in Wall Street, the interests of a transnational uh, elite whose uh, fortunes, whose skills are in demand everywhere in the world have given have been given priority over that of uh, Americans whose horizons, whose skills, etc., are more oriented towards the domestic economy. That's the reason why something like TPP is now being uh, sold down the river by someone like Hillary Clinton. So I do think America is not going to be any longer able to sustain this role of being the hegemonic world power, which bankrolls a sort of free trading system, which, uh, you know, is there for uh, military intervention whenever those interests are threatened. I really do think there's a palpable sense that that's what overreach is. We can't do that anymore. And in different ways, Trump and Sanders hit those buttons at opposite ends of the spectrum. 
and that's why they were Sanders was as popular as he was. So I think something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership should be looked at more closely to see why is it that someone like Hillary is retreating from it. And we'll do that a little bit later in the program, but I want to hear first from John David. Right. So I, I think uh, that, you know, th- there is this almost isolationist movement in the United States now, which uh, Krishna referred to. But I, I that frightens me more than it uh, makes me want to, you know, critique America, honestly. So I th- I do think we're at a transition point. I agree with uh, Krishna on that as well. But I'm not an isolationist. I agree with Ralph Koss on that. And uh, so I still think there's a role for the United States as the premier liberal democracy in the world and the premier economy in the world. Um, I, I Just what are the alternatives to this role? I mean, when I look at China, I've spent a lot of time in China. China is very interesting. <clears throat> but China is – China pursues a kind of uh, neo-mercantilist policy in terms of its economy. Uh, they're, you know, they're pretty hegemonic in terms of their, uh, their resource access. The South China Sea is an example of that. Uh, it's not a democratic country. It's, it, even though I have a lot of respect for my Chinese friends, I, it's not a country that I would want to live in. Uh, so what are the alternatives? Can we uh, – is, is this going to be a multipolar world without a, you know, a kind of a leading role or a superpower? That's really the, the, the question that I get hung up on when I start critiquing the United States is like, OK, we've done a lot of bad things. But uh, we've also provided in the postwar period uh, a pretty consistent line of leadership – it's led to tremendous prosperity in the world. Uh, yes, it's, it's excluded some people from that prosperity, but uh, the overall record, I think, in the post-war period is pretty good. Which goes back to what Ralph had to say about living up to values, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But if you'd like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open at 941-3689. If you call us from Oahu, that's the number to use, or 877-941-3689. We're taking on the question, what is America's place in the world? And to take it one step further, what should it be? Going now to Anne calling us from Mililani. Aloha, Anne. Welcome to Town Square. Aloha. It's Anne Freed. Um, so I'm a, I'm a retired Army public affairs officer. And, you know, I think a lot of the folks in the world who now we have a draft Army do not understand the military and its proper use in democracy. One of the things that we are learning about is how much we do not know how to prosecute warfare or what is its use when we're dealing with an asymmetric threat. And I think, you know, some of your gentlemen may be able to address that one. You know, we do not yet know how to handle asymmetric warfare on an international scale. We're still learning in the military. So the question is, to what is the proper, what should the U.S.'s place be in the world? I mean, that is a good question to be asking. We still have overwhelmingly the best military force in the world. With that comes some sense of responsibility when it comes to humanitarian crisis, when it comes to disaster relief, when it comes to a whole host of things. But should we be meddling with internal factionless uh, tribal warfare? Not unless it threatens our security, but therein, there's the question. When does it threaten our national security? So, so when, do, when does I, it, Anna, according to you, when does it threaten our national security? Well, that's my question, Beth. I don't know either. Okay. 
I don't know either. <laughs> All right, Anne. Thanks very much for the call yeah. and, and for the poke oh. and the question. There was a very interesting article in uh, a New York Times from within the last week. It was a lengthy article, and it talked about how the Pentagon cannot account for a few hundreds of thousands of high-powered rifles that they have distributed in countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, and a whole bunch of places. Now, anybody who knows anything about the armed forces knows that a soldier is pretty much wedded to his gun. He knows its serial number. He has to clean it. He has to keep it perfectly uh, ready to go. He has to account for every piece of ammo. Armies are built on the possession and the maintenance of that possession over their rifles. And here we are in a situation where the United States armies do not know where a sizable hundreds of thousands of their weapons have gone. In part, this is the result of forms of privatization that have taken over the security establishment of the United States. We've decentralized on grounds of efficiency a lot of the ways we do things. So there is no centralized inventory control even over our weapons. The same article talked about how in these places we have been giving uh, weapon systems like rocket-propelled grenades, like armor-piercing uh, artillery, to groups which have no need for them because the only people at the receiving end of such things is the U.S. Army itself. So the article went on to talk about a degree of irresponsibility, really, in U.S. military conduct, which is a reflection of the forms that market capitalism has taken at the present time, what's conventionally called neoliberalism. So my response to Anne is not only do we not know any longer how to conduct asymmetric warfare, because that's where what David's been talking about comes in, you have to engage with these places culturally. You have to have people who can empathize with the way they go about doing things. Not only are we not doing that, I think even in terms of conventional yardsticks about how to conduct war, the United States is actually behind where it was a couple of decades ago. Yeah, so John? so it exactly. We don't we don't need we we should try some other approaches, non-military approaches. Uh I think this is this this option has not been pursued in terms of asymmetric warfare enough. There've been there've been some experiments in it in Afghanistan and Iraq, but uh the you know, the it's still a dominant military and lethal force approach to uh, these very new military environments where you have these forces that hit and run, uh, that uh, do terrorist attacks, you know, we've got to become more web savvy. We've got to become more, um, uh, as Ralph said at the outset, we've got to recruit on our values. I think our values are not that bad. Spoken like a true Midwesterner, not that bad, but really. Uh when you put our values up against the values of ISIS, come on, we should be able to win that values argument, but we haven't really tried. Uh, We've we got to do better in terms of just getting things out on social media and, and that kind of stuff. Ralph, we're back to your argument about living up to those values. Right. But as you heard Anne ask that question that she has no answer for, I mean, talking about Anne Fried, who called a moment yes. ago, is there any part of that answer that you see? Well, you know, first of all, I thank Anne for her service and, and 
I think her question demonstrates how thoughtful our military people are in trying to work through these problems. I think we've had a great deal of difficulty. We've had a problem deciding whether we were fighting insurgents or terrorists. And you do those two different ways. In one area, you try to win hearts and minds, and in the other, you're just trying to kill someone before they kill you. And I think we've gotten our our tactics and and, uh, strategies confused. So I, I think we do need to sit and reflect and review the impact of things like uh, drone strikes. I, I think um, I've never heard of that study that Krishna mentioned, but it seems a little uh, skewered to me. But uh, yes, I, I think we need to be reviewing all those things and constantly asking those questions. And I think that's what our, our military does and what our national leaders need to do. I, one of the problems right now, uh, I think, in our in our country is that uh, we've decided that we have to have black and white debates over gray issues. Uh, and once you start doing that, uh, you can't possibly come to any decent conclusions. Uh, so we we need to be focusing a little more on the shades of gray and how how we uh, deal with those things. And it requires thoughtful, you know, as a sort of a shameless plug, that's what think tanks like Pacific Forum are designed to do, which is to try to think through these things and come up with uh, alternative answers and and make people reflect on what they're doing. And you need to be an equal opportunity critic to do that. Uh, But you also need to have some sort of judgment on uh, not going off off the cliff on either end. There are times when it seems that value proposition that you and and John and and, and Krishna have talked about seems to be at odds with fingers being pointed at the United States for having a double standard, for doing what's expedient, not necessarily what lives up to those values. Is that a fair argument? Uh, Of course it is. Uh, Show me a country that doesn't have a double standard. Uh, Of course you do. You know, we were... We were much tougher on Burma for human rights than we were on China. Why? Because there were a whole bunch of other issues that were involved in China, where Burma for a while was a free kick. Uh, Now we've got a much more nuanced uh, policy toward Burma, and it's paying off. There was also, of course, you know, leadership developments in the country that that made it possible. But everyone has a double standard. You don't treat uh, Russians who are marching into the Ukraine the same way you treat the Uzbeks who are just uh, upsetting their own people. So uh, I, you know, guilty as charged. We have double standards. But uh, to the extent that we set our ideals aside, uh, when we talk about, uh, I don't want to be political, but talk about banning Muslims from the United States or something like this, uh, then I think we, we have a problem when we need to, you know, we need to sort of come back a little bit, take a deep breath and remember what America is and what it stands for. All right, we're going to move on. If you'd like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open. We're taking on the question, what's America's place in the world and what should it be? Ralph Casso, who you just heard a moment ago, is joining us. He's the president of the Pacific Forum, CSIS. And also in our studio is John Davidan from the University of Pardon me, Hawaii Pacific University. And from UH Manoa, we have... Krishna with us as well. Thank you so much, all of you, for being here. If you have a question concerning about uh, concerning what you think America's place should be or what we might use as criteria for creating that place, we want to hear from you, too. 
941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Going to Brooks, calling us from Javi. Aloha, Brooks. Aloha. Hi there. Can you hear me? We can. Okay. Uh, yeah, my, my comment is that uh, America's uh, proper place in the world, being the, the most powerful country and with all these great ideals and everything, is to lead humanity into a sustainable path, which we are uh, not doing. We're going in the opposite direction. Uh, and we, we have to uh, set the example through living sustainably and change our policies away from consumerism into one that allows dignity for all. Uh, we, we, when I hear some of your panelists talking about uh, the good that the United States has done in the world, uh, it's unbelievable to me that you're totally ignoring uh, 50 years of interference in Latin America and uh, the Middle East. The problems that we have there are because of our hegemonic attitude that might make right and we can do what we want. We have totally changed that around and set the example. And Hawaii is the place to do it because we are the island and this is an island. All right, Brooks. Thanks very much for the call and and for the comment about that. You know, talking about sustainability, I mean, we've got over 6,000 people who have descended on Honolulu for the uh, IUCN this week and into next week, looking at a very different view of what sustainability is, but looking at it in the way in which Brooks was just positioning it. How do you respond to him? I see you nodding, John. Yeah, I I think he's – thanks for your call, by the way, and your comments – you know, they were in my – what I would describe those as mistakes, okay? We we made mistakes. Uh, the United States has um, – you know, when you're a superpower, uh, you, sometimes you're going to stumble. You're going to get involved in, in things you shouldn't get involved in. And, and our interventions in Latin America have caused, you know, a great deal of trouble down there. So, yeah, that's fair enough. That's a fair criticism. Um, I do think that – uh, th- this question of what the line is, you know, we've been kind of banding this around, uh, Ralph and Christian and I have, and uh, this is a very difficult line to draw, but uh, I would favor, you know, non-lethal force, non-lethal types of of persuasion instead of, of military force. Uh, we, we did that in Latin America in World War II. It was very effective. Uh, we essentially defeated Nazi propaganda uh, in Brazil and Argentina and other parts of Latin America through very sophisticated use of our own uh, uh, our own media. Uh, Walt Disney went to Brazil, and and Disney created a new character called La Carioca to go alongside of Donald Duck, and we did uh, uh, some some feature films with those two, and and I think it was very effective. In that time, so you know, I think he's right about that. Uh, sustainability in in a kind of uh, American power—that's a very tricky question. Um, Christian, yeah. you want to answer, answer him? Yeah, I think Brooks raises a really important question, and that is, you know, see, the problem is part of the reason why the United States is such in such an attractive society to the rest of the world, why people want to come here and why the Americans' lifestyle is so appealing is these are all the reasons why I think a future built on that desire is completely unsustainable. We 
the rest of the world loved America for its multi-lane highways, for its high-speed Mustang cars, for its endless, seemingly endless supply of electricity, and you know the good life as portrayed by Hollywood and as lived by every American was an extraordinarily energy-intensive and unsustainable lifestyle. And today you have countries like India, China, Brazil, all wanting that. And it's pretty obvious this planet cannot sustain it. So when he points out that America should lead the world towards a sustainable growth, I actually can't think of a more inappropriate candidate in some ways uh, than the U.S. So who's a better candidate? uh, That's a very... I think a very important question. I think uh, if you look at, uh, you know, I spend my summers, six weeks every summer in South Korea, and it is astounding to me how effective a recycling program they have over there. Uh, The amount of household waste generated by a typical middle-class family there is a tiny fraction of what the United States middle-class families produce. I spent a year living in London. Again, the amount of trash generated per family there is astoundingly small. So it's not that a hyper-industrialized society cannot be way more efficient in the way that they consume, recycle, etc. I think, frankly, the United States has a lot to learn from a number of these societies in terms of how to marshal its resources and recycle and things like that. We can't be the leaders in everything, in all aspects of everything. There are some who would say it's not that we don't know, but it's just that we really choose not to do. I think they're right. Yeah, I think uh, policy and entrenched in- interests in lobbyists, in politics lobbyists for more kind of energy intensive uh, uh, use, uh, you know, electrical use and such. Yeah, I mean, Japan is another example. Tremendous in terms of sustainability and, and energy conservation. Um, you know, we were talking before the show about how cold it gets down here. In Japan, the thermostat is always close to 80. And they've, they've adjusted. They've created short sleeve suits <laughs> for that kind of an energy environment. So Not a great fashion statement, maybe, <laughs> yeah, but very practical. It, it works. And uh, so absolutely, we, we've got a lot to learn in terms of that kind of sustainability. All right, let's take another call. Let's go to Kathy calling us from Maui. Aloha, Kathy. Welcome to Town Square. Aloha. I just was uh, considering talking about what America's role is and how it has been military in so many ways. And I vote for the fellow who was talking about nonviolent. But what came to mind for me was, you know that saying about with knowledge comes responsibility? In other words, when you know there's injustice someplace, you know it. And what responsibility as a country do you have to help Resolve that. All right, Kathy, thanks very much for your call. The corollary to that might be how much responsibility can you take or, or should you take in in the world? Ralph, are you still there? Uh, yes, I am. Okay. I'm having a bit of trouble hearing you. If there's some way to turn the volume up a bit, it would be helpful. But I think you said something about how much responsibility should we take in the world. And right, right. With, Kathy, t- Kathy just right. called it and, and was saying, you know, with, with great... Uh, wealth comes great responsibility with right. all of that. We've heard variations on that in past. But how do you create some sense of balance with how much responsibility, for example, America should take and can take without either thwarting uh, you know, internal policy of, of other nations or, in fact, just you know, exacerbating a situation that's 
already more difficult in, in terms of, of resources that are available. Yeah, well, there's you know there's probably a Nobel Prize in the in for the person who can give a good answer to that question. Uh, I think we've discovered a lot of things that can't work and a lot of things that uh, we can't fix. Uh, but I, I do think, uh, when it comes down to it, uh, there was a, a wonderful speech, actually, again, without trying to be political, but Secretary Clinton yesterday gave a speech about American exceptionalism. Uh, it was literally not covered at all because of all of the uh, focus on the immigration uh, issue. But uh, I think that's, that's where we need to have a, a debate. How do you define American exceptionalism? We are, in fact, uh, an exceptional country just given our size, given our wealth, given our, given our values. How do we, how do we most uh, accurately apply that? And, and again, I guess I go back to my, uh, my earlier statement. We've, we've got to have a sensible dialogue. And unfortunately, uh, political campaigns are not the time for sensible dialogues. And we've certainly seen that in spades this year. But once we get through the campaign, uh, whoever wins, I think we need to really do a great reassessment of what's America's role and, and how we can most effectively apply uh, those resources. Uh, I don't think America is the world hegemon, and I certainly don't think we aspire to be that. And I think when you start off by accusing uh, somebody of that, it sort of puts them on the defensive and sort of makes the rest of the discussion extremely uh, difficult and probably not very fruitful. Uh, I, I think there is a, a role that we need to play. Uh, I think we've played it very responsibly in, in a number of areas, uh, but certainly. And, and it's, not, it's not just a military role. The, the problem is, you know, uh, we talk about 250 or ultimately 2,500 Marines going to uh, Australia and everyone gets all upset, but you know every day there's 250 American businessmen get, that get off a plane, uh, almost every plane. Uh, there's you know thousands every day that are promoting American values and and uh, trying to trying to help. Uh, we we see businessmen. I guess nowadays it's a dirty word to be a businessman, uh, but in in reality there are a lot of good business people who are who are helping. Uh, economies to grow. Sure, they're helping their companies to grow as well, but this is it's an interconnected world, uh, and and all of this has to happen. So uh, we we need to recognize just what kind of contributions we're we're making. Uh, we did a lot of wrong things in Latin America. There's no doubt about that. But don't forget that President Carter was at the forefront of promoting democracy in Latin America. And by the time he got done in in office, there were a lot more democracies there than. Before and I don't apologize for the U.S. promoting democracy, and we shouldn't be doing it by trying to assassinate someone or undermine them. But uh, to promote our values is is part of what uh, America is all about. All right, we're going to take one more caller. We're going to go to Joe calling us from Maui. Aloha, Joe. Welcome to Town Square. Aloha. How are you? Doing well, thanks. I want to thank you very much for having a very useful conversation, and I appreciate. And I also realize that many Americans and many organizations have done many wonderful things. However, whenever there's a military uh, solution or argument, I'm always reminded of Eisenhower when he said that, I believe it was Eisenhower who said that any, every bomb that's dropped is one more school that's not built, one more hospital that's not built, and so many miles of highway that's not built. And 
why my question is that with this might that we have of military, we supposedly control Afghanistan, yet 95% of all the heroin comes out of Afghanistan. We have this war on drugs where we're jailing people for using a substance that the, quote, government or somebody is allowing to to arrive from Afghanistan, and yet we have the CIA going ahead and bringing drugs in from South America. I'm just wondering what particular values do we want to promote? Do we want to promote this weird balance that we have and also militarizing our police? So that's kind of my comment and question. All right, Joe, thanks very much. Okay, this issue of values, we always have conversations about values, and if we operate from our values, what are those values, and and is it appropriate to uh, see those values promulgated in other places, depending upon which set of values you ascribe to? I'm going to go over to you, Krishna, a couple of things that I know you wanted to be able right. to answer, Ralph, and also to, to look at this issue that Joe just brought up. Right. I think they're sort of related. In As Ralph probably knows, in large swaths of international relations literature, you're not engaging in name-calling when you describe a power as hegemonic. It's also a compliment. The United States presided over a world order very effectively, all the way from 1945 and arguably to the present. It set up conditions for relative peace in a good chunk of the world, not to forget the huge conflicts in Vietnam, Korea, and all the others that were also the obverse of that of that piece, but it did establish certain conditions which enabled a recovery from the Second World War. So hegemony implies a kind of leadership, and it's not entirely negative. I did want to say that. So it's an invitation to debate, not a closing of debate to describe the U.S. as a hegemonic power. But on the second issue, I have a much stronger disagreement with them. I think American exceptionalism is the problem. It's not the solution. I think America has to learn to take its place amongst the countries in the world and not try to be a unilateral leader irrespective of the wishes of others. That's what we did in the second Gulf War, and that's why I think to a large extent we are in the predicament that we are in right now. This belief that we are somehow specially sanctioned to be greater than the rest, and which I see repeatedly in the rhetoric of a lot of leaders, including Hillary Clinton, What was refreshing about Bernie Sanders was he didn't do that. But this claim about American exceptionalism, I firmly think, is a large part of the problem and no part of the solution. John David. So I I think every nation thinks that it's exceptional. And you can see that argument in the the history of our country as well. Um, So those exceptionalist arguments are going to be there. um, And they have caused problems for the country. The thing is, American internationalism is has been contradictory even through this time period uh, when the United States has been quite successful in the world in creating a post-war world order. Uh, there have always been those who didn't believe that the United States should be involved in that world. Uh, those who uh, attacked that world were frightened by that world. I'm, here I'm talking about McCarthyism um, and the anti-immigration movement today. So, honestly, I I would like to propose my own kind of containment policy. This is not a Cold War containment policy, but a containment policy to contain the attitudes of some Americans who are are in that category of being afraid of or threatened by the international world. I think 
one of the biggest problems this country has is that internal attitude, which then plays out into how we interact in in a in the international world in a global environment. So it's it, this is a political problem. It's not going to be solved by me or by us, but um, <clears throat> I really think we have to attack uh, that as well uh, in terms of our own politics. Uh, because the the international world has given us so much in the last uh, you know seventy years, I, you know, I'd hate to lose that. In almost this last hour, we've tried to look at what America's place in the world is now and and what it should be. There are many places that we couldn't go to to be able to talk about because America has been so much in so many places. But just to cap off this hour, we've got just a couple minutes left. As we go forward, whatever happens in in November, as you each see where where the United States is now and where it properly ought to go, according to each of your perspectives, what is an absolute non-negotiable for you that has to be in the complement of what the U.S. does, its actions going forward, its foreign policy, and and uh, what would you see that as being? What's the non-negotiable? And Ralph, I'll start with you. Well, I, you know, I think we need to look at what are the greatest threats to uh, humanity right now. One of those, of course, is uh, nuclear proliferation. Uh, I think that we need to take a strong stand, continue to take a, a strong stand there, uh, reassure our allies so they don't feel to go nuclear, and find ways. Uh, through dialogue and through a combination of dialogue and sanctions to make sure countries like North Korea don't spread those. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll go back to my uh, initial comment. Uh, I think there are a lot of problems in the world that the U.S. has no business trying to solve, but there are some that only we can solve and some that can't be solved without our uh, involvement, and, and we need to take on that responsibility. And, and I'm sorry, but I'm serious I'm, debate. I got to stop you right there, and thank sure. you so much for joining us tonight, Ralph Casa, the uh, president of Pacific Forum CSIS. I want to give each of you about 20 seconds. What's a non-negotiable for you, Krishna? I think global change, uh, global warming, climate change is the issue that's going to render a lot of this discussion moot. And if the U.S. has a role, a constructive role, it could start there. I, I don't. Th- I don't think we can go back to isolationism. I don't think. I, I think the the globalization in the global world is ineluctable. We're, we can't go back. So American people, we can't go back. So welcome to the new normal as it continues it's, to develop. Exactly. John David Ann, thank you so much for being here from HPU and from UH Manoa Krishna. We appreciate having both of you here and all of you with us too. I'll see you tomorrow morning. For the conversation right back here at 8 o'clock. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. Aloha.